we're getting back into the series we've been in, okay? So for the past uh, almost a year, maybe a little less than a year, we've been going through the books of Samuel, okay? So we're in 1 Samuel right now. We're halfway through. As a matter of fact, why don't you turn there in your Bibles to 1 Samuel? We're in chapter 16, and I know it's been a while since we've been in Samuel. Maybe I'm a little rusty in teaching from Samuel. I guess we'll see. But 1 Samuel 16 where we left, uh, left off uh, last time, two months ago, was kind of a natural break in 1 Samuel 15. It's where God rejected Saul from being king. And in this chapter, what we see in these first 13 verses is God moving the spotlight of main character away from Saul to someone else. So read with me, starting in 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you this afternoon. And we pray that you'd speak through your word. God, every single passage, every single verse, every single word that you have breathed out, God, is profitable for us. There's so much in here. I just pray, God, that you would help us to glean what you want us to glean today. God, I pray, too, that we would learn the lesson of this text. God, that you don't see in the same way that we see. And God, I pray that through my own weak words and through my own weak sermon, God, that you would communicate something of yourself to us, that we might be changed and convicted and encouraged and built up. God, that we might become the people that you want us to be. God, I know every single person in this room is here because you wanted us, wanted them to be here. God, so I pray that your spirit will do what only he can do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do you believe in love at first sight? Maybe you've never experienced it, but I think we all kind of understand the concept. It's kind of a popular thing in our culture. I remember there's a guy that I know of. He would always talk about how when he met his wife, it was love at first sight. And when she met him, same time, right? It was just first sight. Do you believe in love at first sight? Let me tell you a story. You might know it. From the moment that he met her, he loved her. Now, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's true. Now, he had been going through some stuff. He had been having some family drama. He had actually run away from home, and he had moved away to a place where he didn't actually know anybody. He was exhausted. He was tired from his journey. But the second that he saw her, it was like God filled him with the strength of Samson because he saw her, 
And she was a shepherdess. Okay, this is old school. She was a shepherdess. Not exactly the most glamorous profession. Kind of dirty, actually. But even through kind of like the smell and all of that of the sheep, he saw her and he was wowed and he ran up to the well where she was trying to get water for the sheep and he moved the heavy stone by himself and he watered every single sheep by himself. That's how much he was smitten by this woman. And then only then he finally introduced himself. He went up to her and he said, my name is Jacob. Now I try to keep some suspense because it's a well-known story. If you know Genesis, you know this story. This is when Jacob, the patriarch, the brother of Esau, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, meets Rachel, his beloved wife, for the first time. You know the story. There was no dating There was no pre-arranged marriage, which happened a lot in those days. The parents didn't get together for this. There was no online dating profile where they got to like check out each other a little bit beforehand. This was pure love at first sight. But there's more to the story. Rachel's father, Laban, he could see the look in Jacob's eyes. And he was a shrewd man. He was clever. Okay, he knew that he could manipulate the situation to his own advantage. So Jacob had come to live with them. They were part of the same clan. Laban hired Jacob to work for him. And Jacob said, okay, I'm going to work for you. And Laban said, okay, how much do you want to get paid? And he said, how about instead of payment, you let me marry your daughter, Rachel. Give me your blessing. He said, I don't need to get paid. I will actually serve you seven years for free if you will just give me the hand of your daughter, And Laban said, sounds good. All right. Because in those days, seven years of free labor from someone who was competent and a good worker, that was way more than a regular asking price for a bride. This was way more than a regular gift. This was crazy. And yet that's how in love Jacob was. Genesis 29, 20. What does the scripture actually say? It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love that he had for her. So cute, right? So romantic. Brothers, go and do likewise. Shall we close in prayer? No, I'm just kidding. I don't bring this up by way of example, by way of go and do the same. No, right? Though, you know, it would be good, okay? It is good, scripturally, to go and serve your wife and to love her, not necessarily her father-in-law, but serve her. But that's not what we're talking about today. I don't bring this up by way of example. I bring this up by way of illumination to shine the spotlight on something that the Bible itself points out, even in the earliest book of the Bible, the first book, that there is incredible power in beauty. What do I mean? Well, if you think about the story, what did Jacob know? about Rachel. Did he know anything? I mean, he saw that she was a shepherdess because the sheep. He knew that they were of the same clan. But truth be told, shepherdess did not exactly make people like you any more than any other profession, maybe less. And the truth was, Rachel had an older sister who was also of the same clan. And yet Jacob saw her and he didn't, guess what, fall head over heels in love with her. What set Rachel apart? The Bible just goes out and says it. Doesn't matter. People don't want to hear it. It's truthful. It says, Genesis 29, 17, Rachel was beautiful in both form and in appearance. To put it in modern parlance, Rachel was a perfect 10 in every single way. There is power in beauty. Now, this is a touchy subject, I think, for a lot of people. Some of us spend a lot of time on our appearance. Maybe we've realized that it helps us get ahead in life. Maybe we've had painful experiences because we didn't look the way that people thought we should look. I've known people who, if they don't have time to sufficiently get ready for church, they won't come. It's too late. I didn't have time to get ready and to put my face on or whatever. That's how much pressure people feel to look a certain way. And this is serious, too. I think you guys know this. Kids, right, they get bullied for how they look sometimes. Maybe you applied for a job and you didn't dress up in the way that they wanted you to dress up and you didn't get it. You didn't look the way that they wanted you to look. And this isn't just about physical attractiveness according to society standards because I know some of you guys are like, I just roll out of bed. I don't care. I just, I just am who I am. No filter, no makeup. It's not just about how we look in terms of beauty or handsomeness. It's just about how we come off to people. That's the issue. 
This is about the principle of wanting to appear a certain way or feeling the pressure like you need to. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it because we've been doing it so long, but we constantly pay attention to our image, how we project to the people around us. We want to be seen as a hard worker or a knowledgeable person. We cover our tracks, right, when people kind of catch us and not knowing what we're talking about because that image of being a smart guy is there. What about at church? Wanting to be godly, wanting to seem like we have everything put together. It's because we understand that how we are viewed by others is important in the real world. There's a good reason for it. There's a reason why I think literally every single person struggles with this in some way, shape, or form. Think about social media. I feel like it's only exacerbated the problem. People post the highlights, the smiles, the trips, the family get-togethers. Everyone seems happy. And then when people do share about some of the non-highlights of their lives, what we do is we put that through a filter too. I'm having a rough day today, and people respond, and we know that they're going to respond this way. Oh, you're so brave for sharing who you really are. We manipulate it. I'm just such a wretch. This is what we learn in church. I'm such a wretch. And we say that not because we really feel that deep conviction. Maybe we partly do. But we say it also with the knowledge that if we say that out loud and throw it out into the ether, people will respond to encourage us. You're not, you're not a wretch. In fact, saying you're a wretch means you're not. You're so real and humble. You're probably the godliest person in this church. Thanks for being honest. We care about how we are seen because we know at some level that we care about how others look, and it's the vicious cycle. What a world. And so we come to this pivotal passage in 1 Samuel. And while it's about kings, you might know this story. It's about David, okay? Not a spoiler for you guys, but it's about David. It's about kings and anointings. It's about prophets. It's about all these different things. The thread that runs through this is actually about seeing and appearances. And how maybe we're looking at This, and when I say this, I mean everything, all wrong. So let's situate ourselves, and then we'll get into it, because it's been a while since we were with Samuel. We're halfway through the first book of Samuel. Remember, in the Hebrew, first and second Samuel are just one book. Okay, it didn't fit on one scroll, so they split it up, but it's just one big book. We're halfway through the first book, and think about what's led to this point, the story thus far. A woman is unable to have children, And it's really hard for her, so she goes to the tabernacle. She prays to God. She's desperate, but she has faith. She asks God for a son. God gives her a son miraculously, and then what does she do? She gives him right back to God right away. He's like a toddler, and she gives him to live with Eli in the temple. Young Samuel is dedicated to the Lord from the time he is weaned. He's a Nazarite, a sort of new Samson, but this time his strength isn't physical, it's spiritual. And Samuel is raised in Eli's house. And Eli is a terrible priest. He's a terrible father to his own sons. But Eli does point Samuel in the right direction. God does away with Eli and his sons and their priesthood. He raises up Samuel to not only take their place, but to be a prophet and to anoint the first king of Israel when the people ask for a king. We read about that in Acts 13. The people want a king. Samuel anoints the king that they want and the king that they deserve, honestly. Saul, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And Saul, he's looking for lost donkeys. He doesn't know he's going to find a kingdom. He's anointed king. He starts off with a lot of potential, but then he spectacularly fails. He wins battles, but he fails to listen to the Lord. So God rips the kingdom away from him. And now, you know, there was a lot in there. Okay, I've enjoyed personally going through the first 15 chapters of Samuel. But there's a sense in which what's past is merely prologue. For the book of Samuel has actually been building to this moment. The book of Samuel, even though it's called Samuel, is really, in terms of what it's about, the book of David. From here on out, David is going to take over as the focal point. All the way to the very end of 2 Samuel. So let's get into the text Let's meet this guy, and as we do, we'll break this text down under three headings. First, the commission, the commission, which teaches us the general truth that maybe when we see, we're not actually seeing the whole picture, the commission. Look at verse 1. 
The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, it's been a couple of months, okay, since we were in 1 Samuel to catch you up a little from last time. Samuel has been grieving over the failed kingship of Saul. Now, Saul uh, was called, Samuel called out Saul, okay, boldly. Okay, he came down hard on Saul, but then he goes home and he grieves because this hits him really hard. We don't know exactly how long it's been for him. It's been a couple months for us. It might have been a while for him. All we know is that this was really hard for Samuel, this man of God, to take. Now, when you see a word like grief in the Bible or anywhere, you know that grief is something that happens when someone close to you dies or something intense like that. Grief is the kind of thing that engulfs your entire world. And this is where we start. As a matter of fact, I was on Instagram, of all things, uh, the day that I was writing this. And a friend of mine, we're not super close, so I didn't message her about this and say, I'm going to use this in a sermon, okay? I'm going to keep it very vague. Um, But she, okay, two years to the day that I was writing this, like on Thursday, she was writing about how she and her husband, their family, had lost their son. Okay, so she was talking about it. And I'll just give my impression kind of of generally what she said. But she said, "You you think it would get easier, but it actually gets harder. She said, in the past two years, it's gotten harder and harder and harder. You think that time would heal wounds, but it's actually sharpened the knives of all of the what-ifs that keep accumulating year by year. Like, what would his voice sound like? How would he get along with our other other kids? How many words would he know? You get the picture, right? All of these things were just flooding her mind on that day, on that anniversary. So think about grief for a moment, It's easy to just read 1 Samuel 16 and be like, okay, he was a little sad that Saul didn't work out. Samuel is grieved over what has just happened. we got to step into Samuel's grief for a moment. Try to see things from and through his eyes. Because you got to understand, first of all, that Samuel, who he is, his entire life has been about serving God and serving Israel. Right? Like literally from the time that he could talk and walk, he was given to the Lord in the tabernacle as a prophet and a judge. As an adult, he has traveled in a circuit from town to town to lead Israel. In a very real sense, he's never really had a home. Do you realize that? He has sacrificed that in order to serve Israel. Wherever God called him, whether to the altar or to the battlefield, Whatever God told him to say, whether blessing or unpopular judgment, whatever God told him to do, whether to anoint a king that he's not so sure about or to hack another king to pieces, Samuel has done it without complaining. Why? Because Samuel is faithful. But now he's not sure what it was for exactly. You can see that, right? Everything's been kind of building to something. And yet here it seems like it's reached a dead end. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him or his people. Saul is disqualified, and yet Saul is still on the throne. And he was rooting for Saul too. There's personal hurt here. The text, if you read it in Hebrew, it's pretty clear that he likes Saul. He wanted Saul to do well. But Saul crumbled under the weight of the crown. And sure, Saul isn't dead, but make no mistake, Samuel feels like he lost him. He feels like he lost Saul. He feels like he lost Israel. And so Samuel's grief, I think, is really the grief of despair. Just not seeing how things are going to work themselves out. Not seeing, at least practically so, personally, how good can come from this. Just looking ahead at the future of his people and the future of his own life as a prophet and not seeing how it's going to pan out in a way that'll be good. And I spent time on this, on just this one verse, because truth be told, I see this kind of despair in people all the time. Maybe not like to the same degree all the time, but there's a certain hopelessness that I think is pretty common in our day and age. It manifests in terrible anxiety, for instance, you know what I mean? Thinking about the future and all you can think about is what can and probably will in your mind go wrong. So many people are racked with anxiety all the time. You think tomorrow is going to be bad. That's the default. It manifests in this extreme pessimism. If this happens or if this doesn't happen, then everything's over. If this thing happens to the church, well, that's just, that's it, man. I don't think Jesus is coming back. And I exaggerate. 
But honestly, this is how a lot of people feel. I don't know if I'm going to get better. That's what people think. And I don't know if life's worth living. I don't know if tomorrow is going to be better than today. I don't know what to do. I just feel dead inside. Can you relate to this at all? Am I being too vague? Let me put it like this. Have you ever looked at the circumstances and situations of your life at any given time and thought, I have a hard time seeing, if I can be honest, I have a hard time seeing how this can be part of God's good plan. Didn't get the job. Asked that girl out and she rejected you. You thought she was so beautiful, but she didn't think you were that good looking. The election didn't go the way that you wanted it to go, whatever election it is. You lost some money. Someone sinned against you. Maybe your marriage fell apart and it wasn't your fault. And you come before God and all you have is grief and despair because you're thinking, okay, I know you say that all things work together for my good, but I literally can see zero way that this is going to happen. How could this be part of your good plan? So Samuel, he grieves. And if you know the context and the story, you can see why he grieves. Because everything is falling apart. And it's into this grief that God, who first spoke to Samuel many, many years before this, speaks to him again. Look at the text. He says, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Notice, first of all, he doesn't say stop grieving. God isn't saying that it's inappropriate for Samuel to be emotionally spent after this. God knows our frame. He knows we are but dust. He knows that we have trouble trusting him sometimes. And that's why the the, the Spirit of God wrote in the Word of God that God is close to the brokenhearted and the crushed. He knows that life is hard, but God also isn't going to leave Samuel to wallow in his grief. What does he do? He commissions Samuel to do something. He gives Samuel instructions for a new task. Why? Because even though Samuel can't see it, the show is still going on. The plan isn't over. The story isn't finished. God is still working in the big picture. He sees things that Samuel does not. See, guys, this one verse by itself can preach. There's something in here that I think all of us need to hear. When it looks to us that everything is falling apart, when we can't see how things could get better, God, who sees everything from beginning to end, always gives us a way forward. With God, there are no dead ends. Do we understand that? I think we know that theoretically. But he's showing Samuel the prophet right here. Notice God says, I have provided for myself a king. And you know, in Hebrew, do you know what it says literally? It says, I have seen for myself a king. I have seen for myself a king. Samuel looks at the throne and he sees Saul and he sees the weight of that. But God looks ahead to the throne when someone else, someone that he has seen, someone that he has chosen will sit there and lead the people in a better way. God already saw a greater future for Israel. So verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, Samuel had no problem rebuking Saul last time. I said that. He did it because it was necessary. He seemed to have no fear. But here he's like, I don't know if I can do this. Saul's going to kill me. He's scared of Saul. And if you think about it, what probably happened realistically is that when he was talking to Saul last time and rebuking him and all of this, he looked into uh, Saul's eyes and what he saw was crazy. He could tell that Saul is falling apart. He's mentally unstable. He knows that Saul is the kind of guy who will lift his hand against the prophet of God. So he says, God, if I do this, you know that it's not going to end well for me. And what does God say? God says, who cares, right? To live, to die is gain, bro. To live is Christ. Just do it. He doesn't say that. God gives him a way out. And you might be thinking, okay, weird. Like, why would God tell him to be sneaky? He's not being dishonest here. Okay, he really is going to sacrifice. But what God is doing is he's being gracious to someone who needs grace. Someone who's afraid, And he actually is going to sacrifice. God is protecting Samuel, and he's also drawing him to worship. Verse 3. 
He says, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And then verse 4, this is key. Samuel, what? He did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Samuel obeys. This is so, I don't think I can overstate this. This is so incredibly rare in our day and age, but even in the Bible. When God just says, do something, and someone just goes and does it. I mean, he had a little bit of a question there, but there's no excuse. He does it, and this is it. God sees more than we see. God sees the entirety of the big picture, how all the puzzle pieces fit together. But God doesn't usually tell us exactly how it's going to go or how it's going to look. Instead, he gives us a task to do. And he calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And what we see here is that walking by faith isn't blind foolishness. Rather, rather, walking by faith is actually walking by faith in what? In God's sight. God told Samuel, I've seen the future. I mean, he knows the future. He says, go to this place and it'll unfold. I'll tell you when you get there, but you just go right now. Samuel goes. If you think about it, it's kind of crazy. Samuel is the prophet of God. He's been faithful his whole life, but he doesn't learn what the king's name is, who the son is going to be. He doesn't even know how it's going to go down. He just knows he has to show up in Bethlehem and ask for a guy named Jesse. So what does Samuel do? He goes to Bethlehem and he asks for a guy named Jesse. Why? Because there's only one real good reason why he would do this. Because he trusts that God knows more than he does. Christian, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, if you're going through something, keep going. If you have faith in God that he is God, then even if you don't know what's at the end of the tunnel, know that if you follow him, he will lead you there. God sees the light that's at the very end, so you can step forward in obedience. The way forward is always obedience. It's always following him. God sees what we cannot. And what the text is setting us up to see is that God's vision is actually better than ours. And this leads to the second, second point. First, the commission. Samuel has a mission. Second, the choosing. This is where he actually chooses the king, the choosing. And it teaches us something about how God doesn't see. God doesn't look at what we look at. Verse 4. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, real quick, what you see here is that the elders of the town of Bethlehem are scared too. Because people know that something has happened between Saul and Samuel. Okay, they know that the country is in chaos and in disarray. They don't know if Samuel is here to judge them. They don't know if they join up with Samuel. Maybe Saul will come out against them. They don't know. So they're scared of taking sides. They're scared of why Samuel's here. Everyone's knees are shaking. But notice the change. Samuel is confident. Samuel says, it's peaceable. I'm here to worship God. I'm just doing what I need to do. He seeks out the family of Jesse, one of my favorite people in the Bible, by the way. But where does this confidence come from? Samuel is doing it. I'm just going to do what God said. Let the chips fall where they may. Verse 6. They get the sacrifice ready. The elders of the town are there. The leaders and Jesse and his sons show up. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, why do you think that is? He sees Eliab just walk. He just imagine he comes in late to church right now and you turn and look at him. What would make you think, okay, this guy is a king? I mean, something about the way this guy looks, it just screams kingly material. What is that to you? Like, how would you, what do you imagine? You know, I was watching this YouTube video uh, this week. And uh, in this video, there's a bunch of guys, and they were deciding that they were going to try to pretend that one of them was a celebrity and see if they could trick random people on the street. A lot of people have done stuff like this, uh, but they had a pretty good plan. So one of them, I guess he was like the coolest looking of them. He was going to be the celebrity. 
And then they had like roles for everyone else. Okay, so you're going to be like the guy with the camera. You're going to be the guy who's kind of like his manager slash director who seems to be like directing a shoot, like something like important is going on here. You're going to be the security guy, right? They figure that every celebrity has an honorage. That's how you know who celebrities are. So they have this plan. They go to a crowded place. This is like a couple of years ago. They're walking down the street and they have this camera on him and they're walking. They got the security and people are turning their heads, right? It's kind of working. They're looking, they're like, who is that? But obviously no one talks to him because no one actually recognizes him because he's not actually famous, right? He's just a rando guy from YouTube. So he's walking, but they knew that this might happen. So what they did on top of this is that they had some of their friends pretend to be fans. Because what is a celebrity except for someone that is famous with fans, right? So they had some of their friends wait for them like down the road. And when they got to that place down the road, one of their friends ran up and she said, oh my goodness, I'm your biggest fan. Can I get a picture? I love everything you do. And then he takes a picture with her, you know, he poses. Another friend comes up and he goes, man, I can't believe I'm seeing you in person. Can I get a picture? These two guys do it, this girl and this guy. And after that happens, all these people, like the floodgates just opened up. People were like, oh, can I get a picture too? They don't even know who, they're like, who's this guy again? All these people in the crowds are like videotaping it because this big celebrity is here. It worked. See, they understood, the guys on YouTube, they understood the power of image. A somewhat cool looking guy, I put that, I don't know if he's cool, but with an entourage and with fans, come on, he must be a celebrity. Now, I'll figure out exactly who he is later, but what he is, just look at the signs, man. He has the look. He has the entourage. He has the fans. It's so obvious what he is, or so they thought. Look, what makes someone seem kingly? Whatever it is, Eliab has it. To the point where Samuel, the man of God, right, one of the godliest people we've seen in the Bible thus far, he's ready to pull his own phone out. Can I get a picture with this guy? I think you might be the next king of Israel. You have the X factor. He's got his trigger finger already on the oil. He's about to anoint him, and God stops him. See, the thing is, who is Eliab? No one knows. We don't even find out he's Jesse's oldest son until the next chapter. The point is, and the text is very explicit here, the point is, he looks like a king. And even for someone like Samuel, a godly man, but still a man, That's powerful. What did I say? There's power in beauty. There is power in appearance. No offense to Sprite, but image is everything. Thirst is, I don't know. Samuel sees Eliab and he goes, man, I knew it. I knew God had a good plan. Thank you, God. Who knew that in the little town of Bethlehem, God would have raised up a king like this. Let's go, right? But in verse 7, The Lord says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is very clear with Samuel. See, okay, who was king because he was tall again? Are we going to rehash this? Saul was the tallest man in Israel. God isn't going to choose his king the same way. You're looking at things all wrong, Samuel. Samuel sees his appearance. Yeah, that's the face of a king. He sees his stature. He's like, I could see him sitting on the throne of Saul. He's pretty tall too. We wouldn't even have to change the throne. I think he could fit. But God says, that's not how I operate. God says, stop. I don't care about how Eliab looks to the human eye. I've already rejected him. So Samuel's like, okay, maybe something wrong with this guy. Let's look at the next one. Abinadab, verse 8, the second oldest. God rejects him too. So they go to the third brother, Shammah. To paraphrase Randy Jackson, that's going to be a no for me, dog. See, every single one, every single one, they start scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're getting lower and lower and lower in the family hierarchy. Now, verse 10 Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Every single one walks by. And with each rejection, they must have been more perplexed. Listen to Samuel. He says, the Lord, the Lord has rejected. Because if it were up to him, he would have chosen Eliab on the spot. But they go down the list of sons. And finally, Samuel's like, huh, 
maybe we should like do it all again or something because every single I thought I heard God say no to every single one. I think he said Jesse was is there another Jesse in town? He says God said one of your sons is it. So verse 11, are all your sons here? And he said, "Oh, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep." It's like, "Oh yeah, there is another one, but I mean, he's not important." Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, this unnamed final son, notice they never said his name yet, was so unimportant in Jesse's estimation that he didn't even call him to come in the first place. The prophet of God is here to do a special sacrifice. He wants our whole family to come. They don't even think about inviting David. This didn't mean that Jesse didn't love him or anything. It just means that Jesse, in his mind, he's like, we don't really need this guy to come. I mean, think about what's actually being communicated in the details of this text. Okay, if you have a son, and we talked about parenting last week, if you have an oldest son, you train him to take over what's important to the family, the family business. If sheep were Jesse's family's business, they would have had Eliab and Abinadab and Shammah running their huge flocks. No, that's not their main business. We don't even know what their main business is. They have a few rando sheep that they figure, let's just let the last son take care of it so they have something to do. It's not important to them. Jesse thinks that David, for all he loves him, right, for how much he loves him, he thinks that David isn't really that big of a deal. The picture being painted is of an afterthought. So Samuel says, let's go get him, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in to go to the field. They're like, hurry up, right? Samuel's here. And he's like, no one told me, but okay. He brought him in. And the text says that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. The text still hasn't said his name. We know who he is, but it does describe him before we find out his name. First of all, he was ruddy. Do you know what that means? I don't think we call people ruddy that much today. In fact, the Bible only calls one other person ruddy, and that's Esau, Jacob's brother. Esau was ruddy. He had a lot of red hair. Um, but really, when it's talking about him, it's not so much the hairiness per se, or even the redness when it's talking about ruddiness. It's more like this idea that he's rustic or rugged or manly. He's a manly man. Jacob was kind of a mama's boy, no offense, just hanging out with his mom all the time. But Esau was out hunting in the fields. He was tough. He was rough. David is kind of like that a little bit. But then it says, secondly, that he had beautiful eyes, which pretty much means that he was a pretty boy. Now, it sounds like these two ideas are kind of contradictory, but they're really not. They're saying that David is kind of that rare blend, that rare mix, where he's kind of a manly man. He's kind of the guy that guys want to be like and hang out with. But at the same time, he's a pretty boy. People, women specifically, they're attracted to him. And it kind of ties it up by saying that he's handsome. Basically, what the Bible is telling us is that he is an attractive person. He's someone that people are drawn toward, drawn to. And if you stay with us throughout the rest of this series, you're going to see that David has this magnetism about him. People want to join up with David. People love David. People like David. They want to follow David. Now, let me ask you. Okay, if you could, if you knew this story, right? If you wanted to recollect the story from your own memory, do you remember this part? Is this how you remember this story going? That God, you know, he said, I've rejected Eliab, okay? Eliab is so good-looking and tall, whatever, kingly. But then David is also ruddy, has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. David also looks good. Is this what you expected? Because, honestly, I kind of forgot about this. It's not what I expected. I would have thought, well, it has to be some plain, generic dude, right? Because that's how God shows us what he cares about. It's not about what you look like. But that's not what God does. See, the problem with that line of thinking, the problem that I'm still thinking, is that it's about appearances. But the Bible is going deeper than that. The Bible is saying it actually doesn't matter at all how they look, good or bad. Look at verse 7 again. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He's not even looking at how you look. He says, do not look on his appearance, Samuel. Can you see past that? Can you stop focusing in on that? 
See, God isn't saying he just rejects what looks good to us. God is saying that he rejects the entire approach. God is saying how things look on the surface simply do not matter. You know, I heard about a church that would use this verse. And I could see where they were going logically. They would say, yeah, God does look at the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. So we need to make sure that if we want to reach man, human beings, then we need to make our church look a certain way. Because that's what actually people care about. Can you see that logic? We need to have a certain kind of music. We need to dress a certain way. We need to make sure that we take care of all these different things that people are looking at. But what the verse is saying is actually much more extreme than that. Okay, what the verse is saying is actually sidestepping kind of that issue. Maybe man does look at the heart, but what God is saying is stop doing that. I mean, man looks at the outward appearance. What God is saying is stop doing that. Because I only care about what's inside. Look, it's not that Saul was tall, so David must be short. It's not binary like that. It's not Eliab was good looking, so David must be ugly. David looks kingly too. But that's not why God is drawn to him. He's saying, forget that. We've, been, we've already been told why God is drawn to him. He's drawn to him because 1 Samuel 15, 28, in God's eyes, he is better than Saul. How? 1 Samuel 13, 14. Because he has sought out a man after his own heart. See, when God looks at the heart, as he says he does here, he sees in David the kind of heart that he wants, a heart after his own. Now, what does that mean? We call this whole series after God's own heart through 1 Samuel. But what does that even mean? Turn with me to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. I just miss Proverbs so much. I had to go back to this. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel 16. 27, 19. I want to show you something. Proverbs 27, 19. It says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. When you look at your reflection in the mirror, what do you see? You see what you actually look like. I know some of you guys are very literal. You're like, actually, it's a mirror image of what you look like. Okay, the metaphor does fall apart if you push it too far. But you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter how you think you look. It doesn't matter how you imagine you look. It doesn't matter how you want to look. When you look in the mirror, that's how you actually look. It's a bummer, I know. That's how it is. I feel bad myself. Funny story. I was reminded of this in a very visceral way when we were doing live streaming during COVID because we used this really nice camera that we borrowed from someone, unfortunately. So they were zooming in on my face and people would actually text me like, hey, you doing okay, man? You're not looking that good. And I was like, that's just how I look. Oh, man. It was humbling. Okay? It was good. But that's what's going on here. The camera doesn't lie. It shows you who you really are. Now, what's the parallel? As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. What it's saying is the heart is showing you who you really are. And that's what the heart is, according to the Hebrew people. It's not just the organ that pumps blood. It's not just the emotions or the affections. It's not just that, the feelings. It's a comprehensive metaphor for who you are inside. It's who you really are. That's what it's saying. It's who you are beneath the facade, the image that you try to project. It's what your real motivations are behind all of your actions. It's all you really think about that you don't want anyone else to know. It's your true self. So back to 1 Samuel. What God is saying is that he has seen who all these people are on the inside, who they really are, and he wants David. That's the one that he wants. Now, there's some debate as to what this means grammatically, that David is a man after God's own heart, but in context, and especially considering Acts 13, which we read in the scripture reading, it says, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I think it's safe to say, that what, da- that what made David special, what set his heart apart, you could say, was that he had a unique devotion to God. There was a love for God. When God looked across all of Israel, when he looked across Judah, when he looked at Bethlehem, he saw that there was one person whose heart beat for God. It was David. 
Remember, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey what I command. What set David apart was that he wanted to do what God wanted to do. He loved God. He had a zeal for God. He had a passion for who God is. God zoomed right past the ruddiness and beautiful eyes and handsome face. God didn't care about those things. He looked to his heart and he saw in David someone who wanted to do, who truly wanted to do his will. So the question is, can we learn the lesson from this text? Can we learn the lesson from this text that in God's eyes, what we look like, how we present the image we carefully craft that in God's eyes, these things don't matter in the slightest. And maybe we do understand it theoretically, It's not hard to understand conceptually. Maybe I I need to reframe the question. Can we accept this? That this is true. That this is real. Can we accept that true beauty has nothing to do with your physical features? Can we accept that true leadership has nothing to do with how loud your voice is or how strong your jawline is? Can we accept that more people in the pews might have nothing to do in reality with how healthy your church is? Can we accept that we spend maybe far too much time caring about something that God doesn't care about at all? Because if we can, then we know that how we're living, how we view people, how we want others to view us, it needs to change. It has to change or else we're not accepting it. I think some of us right now are just realizing how much we really do live our lives for man, for people. See, when was the last time you really searched your own heart? when you really evaluated who you really were and asked, do I love God? Let's see to the third and final point. Let's close this. The closure. The commission, the choosing, the closure. Quickly now. The closure, it teaches us something about where to look. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, to anoint with oil was a symbolic act. It's what you did when someone became a high priest or a king. It was conferring authority. Notice, too, that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, kind of like with Saul, but notice the difference. What does it say in the text? From that time forward, from that day forward. The Spirit is going to leave Saul, but it's going to stay with David. And then did you notice the often overlooked detail? David is anointed in the midst of who? his brothers. Remember Joseph? Remember how annoying that guy was? He would wake up in the morning and say, I had another dream. He would tell all his brothers, I had a dream where you were bowing down to me and I was ruling you. It's like the most annoying thing that you could ever think a younger sibling could tell you. I'm an oldest sibling, so I know. Remember Jesus? He was perfect. He did miracles, actual miracles. He taught like no one had ever taught before. And yet at the same time, his brothers that he grew up with still had a hard time believing in him until the resurrection. Brothers have a hard time with brothers. Siblings have a hard time with siblings. So David is there. He's an afterthought. He gets anointed in the midst of his brothers. What do you think his brothers were thinking? How do you think they saw this? We don't know exactly, but we know human nature If we're thinking uh, along their lines, they're probably thinking something like, this guy? you got to be kidding me. At least Shammah, please. If you flip ahead to 1 Samuel 17 for a moment, just one chapter, David and Goliath, we'll get there in a couple weeks. David's at home. Jesse sends him to go visit his brothers who are on the battlefield. Look what Eliab says, dude. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's like, I know how wicked your heart is. Just go back to your lame job of taking care of those handful of sheep. 
Now, clearly, right, something's off here. He wasn't seeing David's heart the same way God saw his heart. But pause there for a moment. Yes, David is a man after God's own heart. And maybe I could just end the sermon right here. Just go be like David. Go love God more. See a peace. But the question is, how? Why? If I'm not like David right now, if I don't love God the way that I should, how can I get from here to there? I mean, David, he's a psalmist, right? David is the king. David is special. I'm just a regular person. And then some of you guys, you know how the story ends. You have some questions. You're like, sure, David is better than Saul, but that's not saying much. In fact, doesn't David do some things that are worse than what Saul ever did? How do we square that with David being someone after God's own heart? Well, let's make this personal, and then I'll answer it, and then we'll close. Let's make it personal. When God looks at you, and if God is real, and he is who he says he is, he's looking at you right now. He doesn't see the facade or the image. He sees who you really are. What do you think he actually is seeing? To the best of your ability, what do you think God is seeing when he looks into your heart? He's not fooled by our social media account. He's like, wow, Jesse's really living the life. You think he's impressed by the image that I've cultivated for myself? Do you think he doesn't know what I think about, what I dream about, what my heart actually wants? He knows who I really am. So what do you think he sees when he sees you? Let me tell you something. When the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart, There's some debate as to what the grammar actually means. It's somewhat of a generic statement. After is kind of a generic word. What does it mean you're after his heart? What does after mean? And scholars point out that it's not necessarily that David had a great heart. That's part of it. But it's more so communicating the fact that that God had set his own heart on David. And if you study David and his life, I think it's both. It's not just about be like David because David is so great. You got to take, take it further. You got to go a step beyond what made him so great. It's because God loved him first. I think there's a reason why David's name isn't revealed to the very end of this text. Because you know what David's name means in Hebrew? Anyone named David here? It means beloved. See, when David was out keeping the sheep overlooked and afterthought by everyone else, God covered him with his love. And even before then, God had been working the gears of history to get to this point. David did not create himself. You remember the story, the king was going to come from Judah's line. You know the story, Naomi went to Moab and then her family died and they went back with Ruth and Ruth met Boaz and they had a kid named Obed and then Obed had a kid named Jesse and then Jesse had a kid and then another kid and then another kid. Finally, he had his last kid, the lamest kid, David. Maybe an afterthought for Jesse, but beloved of the Lord. See, what am I saying? Turn with me to Luke 7 and we'll end this. I'll I'll go back to Jacob and Rachel at the very end too, but Luke chapter 7. Let's finish this story of Jesus. One of the Pharisees, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him, Uh, At his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Her heart is bad. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Notice he sees his thoughts. Jesus sees right through this guy. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And there you go. When God saw David's heart, he did, in fact, see great love for him. But where does great love for God come from? What does the scripture say? Ask the question, where does any love for God come from? We love, finish it, because he first loved us. It had to be this way because it's always this way. David loved God because he knew how much God had loved him, even though he didn't deserve it. Read the Psalms. Put it together, Christian. God doesn't care how we appear. He doesn't care about the image. God cares about who we really are, but this is a problem because who we really are isn't so great all the time. None of us are like David in that sense. There's a reason why we hide our sins. We tell people we're doing fine when we're really not, why so many Christians have secret lives. We're a mess. But this is where God and his gospel come in. The good news It's not who you are that can make you the beloved of God. It's who he is. And the beautiful irony is that it's those who know that they don't deserve it, who know the depth of their sin, their unworthiness, their ugliness even before God. It's only them who know the depth of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and the beauty of his love for sinners. See, the people who love God the most are the people who know they deserve his love the least. Guys, this is the first David story, but really it's the last Samuel story. And I love how he goes home at the end. Kind of a small detail. But he goes home, why? Because he can finally rest. The spirit rushes upon David, and Samuel sees that God has got this. See, all of the grief and perplexity and struggle and confusion, where did it lead? It led right back to God. We'll close with Jacob and Rachel, and we'll pray. Jacob worked seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage, or rather Laban's permission and blessing. You know the story. At the wedding, Laban pulled the old switcheroo, where he switched his daughters. Uh, She had a veil on. They were kind of drunk or whatever. So he marries Leah, He goes to bed with Leah. He wakes up in the morning, and behold, it is Leah, not Rachel. He has married the wrong woman. And Leah is not what Jacob wanted at all. The text says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Leah had weak eyes, which means maybe that she had some deformity or maybe she had bad vision, so she squinted. There's something about the way that she looked, literally and figuratively, that was not attractive to Jacob or to a lot of people. And Jacob didn't love her. He marches to Laban's room and he says, how could you do this to me? How could you mess up my life? Like, you know, he's angry. How do you think Leah felt? Right? She's like, man, I'm being used as a pawn. Jacob doesn't even want me. So Jacob works another seven years for Rachel. He's married to both. And we know how this story goes because of Hannah and Elkanah and all of that stuff. It doesn't go well. Leah tries to earn Jacob's affection. Rachel couldn't have kids, but Leah can So she has a son, and she thinks, well, this is great. You can hear it, even the desperation, but you can hear kind of her enthusiasm in what she says. After Reuben, the firstborn, she says, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. But apparently not, because she has another son, Simeon. And after Simeon, she says, no, this time, because the Lord heard I am not loved, he gave me this one. But apparently That didn't work either. After Levi, the third, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. If you read the account in Genesis, it's actually very sad. But then she gives birth to Judah, the fourth. And she says, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. I will praise Yahweh. And she stopped having children. Here's the truth. Leah never became beautiful. There was no magic spell. There was no happy ending to that story. 
Jacob never loved Leah more than Rachel. Her sons, as great as they were, didn't earn Jacob's affection. It wasn't until she realized that God saw her and that this was enough that things changed. See, we talked about a lot today, but if I can leave you with one thing, it's to know. It's to really know in your own heart of hearts that God who looks, the God who looks not to outward appearances, but looks to your heart, he is a God who is full of grace. He's the same God who took on flesh and died on a cross for the forgiveness of sinners like you and me. He doesn't care about how you appear. He, care, he, cares, uh, he doesn't care about how you appear. He cares about who you are. So go to him. Everything is right here. Will you look to him? Will you follow him? Will you run to him? Will you see that his approval matters more than anything else? Will you see that you can't earn his approval? And will you receive that grace? See, God isn't looking for for perfection. He's looking for you. He's looking for you. So will you pray with me? God, it's an amazing thing that we can come before you, honestly. God, I pray that your grace for us will move us to love you in the way that you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.